0: industrial chillers capable of maintaining large tanks of solvent at temperatures below 60 Celsius. They also offer extensive tech support and consultation services. So whether you need to set up an extraction lab from scratch or you just need some replacement gaskets, give them a call at 855-553-3887 or check out their website at www.bogart.com.
1: Excellent. So we are recording. We have myself Mark Restelli. We've got we've got Franco Smith in Cape Town, South Africa, and then we have Emily Gogol with Infinite Tree. Say hello everybody.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Hey. It's good thanks.
1: To be here. Thanks for being here again. Um so, you know, we're on our long format conversation here cuz obviously with the Hemp Show, we've only got 15 minutes and it's really hard to pack in some quality information in that 15 minutes because it flies by. I know there's a lot of stuff that we didn't go over. We didn't touch on, but, um, if you don't mind, I'd love you to dive into your background and just kind of introduce yourself in your own words. So I don't, I don't butcher them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you would do fine.
1: Hey, I butcher. I butcher everything. Just, just give me a chance, and I will destroy it.
2: Well, yeah. So we, I guess it's a little complicated what we do here at Infinite Tree and kind of my role and and what I'm involved in. So uh, basically, we started Infinite Tree to really provide best in class hemp cultivars for the craft flower market. Uh, what we do at Infinite Tree, we are a soup to nuts production nursery. So we do everything from create the plants, the breeding, the new material, and test that material, make sure it is ready to be released publicly, to creating the commercial seed, bringing those plants to market, um, and then working with other partners in the industry that have similar testing rigorous values around creating craft hemp flower. So, you know, how I got into this in terms of the work is you know, I feel like there's just so many questions that you need to ask your breeder about the material that you're putting in the ground. And when we looked at the industry, we thought, gosh, there is a huge need for reliable material, whether it's on the biomass side or the craft flower side, even though we're primarily on the craft flower side. So as we developed Infinite Tree, we really focused on bringing in genetic lines that are going to work for the farmers to create products they can sell. So we don't release a variety unless we know it's going to have real market value. Either it's been proven in the market years past by a craft flower breeder that they've just grown exclusively. And then we work with that breeder to turn it into a nursery product for farmers across the country. So we really are focused on that kind of reliability and proven success, not only in the field, but also in the marketplace. And that has a lot to do with, um, you know, my background, I think coming from science, being a scientist for many years.
1: Well, I got a ton of questions about that. Okay. So we're definitely <laughs> awesome. going to get to to the background as a scientist, because that's very intriguing. Um, however, I, I just want to touch on what you mentioned with genetics. Obviously, I mean, it rings true. Basically, if you have bad genetics and you're putting bad seeds in the ground, um, you can only do so much. Doesn't matter if you are the best cultivator yeah. cultivator in the world.
2: It's going to uh, make your if... life hard. It, you're exactly. just making your life harder. Yeah, it's like there's a lot of folks who, uh, you know, I've talked to farmers. Like, well, I started off the season thinking I was going to create biomass, and then it turned out I needed to create flower products for my buyer, and it's just a huge nightmare. Um,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, well, I mean, you're basically just shooting yourself in the foot, right? Spend three, four months growing your product, processing it to find out that the genetics were terrible, and you you're basically stuck with inferior crop.
2: Yeah. So we work really hard uh, to make sure that all of the folks that we work with are very educated as to what they're growing. You know, and I'm not, and I'm agnostic in a sense about what to put in your field. You know, we have our own product line, but I recommend other product lines as well. We want farmers to be successful and if they want to grow 10 different things, I want them to be successful growing our product line and then also the additional product lines that they bring in. So we talk to the farmers we work with a lot about why they're making these choices, how they're going to process um, and what their end market is. So we, we really um, pro- try to provide as much information as we can to make them successful, to help ensure they're successful really.
1: I I definitely encounter a lot of farmers that do not do that. They just jumped right into the space and, you know, uh, good for them for doing that. However, it's like flipping a coin, right? It's It's hard. Yeah. And especially with such a new industry, there's so many bad genetics out there and, you know, people are trying to search for the best prices on seeds or clones. And it's like, Hey, uh, $10 or sorry, 10 cents a seed, you know, it's a deal, right? But, a deal for what, what are you getting?
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of the time that I talk at like shows and stuff about people is it's really, it's really hard because there's a lot of seed companies offering really cheap seed right now. And the question is, this is not like buying in bulk at Costco, you know, and it's discounted. Like it's still really high quality vodka, but it's Kirkland vodka. You know what I mean? Like, right. when it's not, like Kirkland's it's like, is
1: basically bulk. gray goose in a different bottle. Yeah. Right? It's,
2: it's, you're not getting gray goose in a different bottle for 10 10- What you're getting is most likely a product from a breeder who created too much inventory that they're looking to move. And if they don't have a lot of great information, if you're not like wowed by their data package and they should have a data package, not just a photo of a COA and a cola and tell you it grows great for craft flower in New Jersey, you know, like that's not enough. You know, it's very buyer beware. So I think people are very attracted by the low prices because they think I want to save money. But what they're really doing is limiting their market potential because even on the craft flower market, you know, we know that if you're growing something that everybody else is growing, doesn't have great, just has okay structure, just has okay terpenes. You're not very getting very much for your craft flower product. And we know outdoor growers who are growing rare, unique, unique, Highly dense big nugs with three to four percent terpenes, and they're getting between four and seven hundred dollars a pound wholesale. So that's like double to triple what other folks are getting, and it it has to do with the what they're what they're bringing to market. It's not just their salespeople are geniuses. I mean, they have great salespeople, but you have to have a quality product. So so what you save fifty cents a plant in May, you know, like so what you saved you save five thousand dollars. You right, know, would you would well, you lose the sugar? Yeah, and then but five thousand dollars. I mean, that's nothing on the flower end if you're able to sell your flower for double or triple a pound. And I'm not even talking about yield. Like we're not even going into like the differences in yield on this stuff, right? Because we all know small airy buds they do not weigh, so you have to grow so much more to get the pounds that you would from a real dense heavy resin craft flower variety. So it's really hard because everyone wants to save money and they think I can save on my seeds. I can save on my plants. I can save on my clones and they are shooting themselves in the foot for later in the year. You get what you pay for.
1: Right. Right. Well, yeah. Wow. That uh, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting because so many farmers we encounter did exactly that. They went for cheap genetics and they have inferior crop when it comes yeah, to harvest and, time.
2: And the other thing about the cheap genetics too, like I said, the, the reason they're so inexpensive typically is because it's a new company and they just want to move units. You know, they made 10 million units of whatever and they need to move 10 million units and they don't care how they move it. They just need it out of their warehouse.
1: For- right. And, and, and something like seeds uh, you know, when you're in that commodities market slash for seeds and you're just looking at seed as a commodity, not as, you know, a boutique genetic, strain that's going to help your market potential um it's it's kind of treated just like distillate where it's a race to the bottom exactly what's the cheapest cheapest price i can find my seeds for what's the cheapest hey i need a thousand kilos of of distillate you know what's the cheapest price i can get it for right but it's not the same
2: but distillate is not seed you know distillate is a very defined product that you can then use for value you know to do other things with with the seed you know it stacks against you. That seed may not germinate well even if the germination report says 92 percent, you know it's it may not actually be 92 percent. Feminization report might look good. How many hermaphrodites do they record per acre? Can, when you ask your breeder, what's your hermaphrodite rate per acre? they should know that answer. you know right. So like hermaphrodites, that's huge labor cost. Dead plants, plants that aren't vigorous and die dampening off as an issue from the seed because it wasn't created properly. Um, lodging in the field due to wind, you might lose 10% to a high wind event if there are plants that lodge. And then let's get to yield. Maybe they don't yield very well. They have larfy open bud structure. So it maybe could be considered craft flower, but you're not going to get the, you know, the weight off of each plant that you would get with a really dense craft flower. I would consider craft flower variety. So it's not that you just it's not like buying cheap distillate where, okay, distillate, distillate the thing. It's like every time you go along the, the growth cycle from seed to final product, you're getting hit with extra labor costs, extra processing costs, losses in the field, you know, losing 10% of your field to pests or wind because they're, they're not very good plants. And then the flower, you're going to have a hard time moving. Cause if they were selling that seed at 10 cents a seed and everybody and their brother has it, if everybody and their brother has it as a flower product, you're probably not going to get top dollar for it.
1: Right. right?
2: If it's common, you know, so people are, it's, it's surprise. It's I think why we see tissue culture and clone.
1: I, I literally just wrote that down because yeah. I'm writing down a ton of questions as you did that. And then one of the ones coming up was tissue culture and you just so happened well, to get to it before I, before I mentioned yeah,
2: it. Yeah. I think I'm saying that's why they can charge so much because people say, look, I'll pay $5 a plant because, well, there are many reasons people like the idea of tissue culture and we can go into my thoughts on tissue culture if you want, but I'm just saying it's like it split the market. There's people who want really cheap seed. And then I kind of took out another section like, Oh, wait a minute. Cheap seed is bunk. I know that. I'm going to go for the most expensive thing on the market because expensive means quality. It's like the, the thing, like if it's, if it's expensive, it'll work better for me. And so I think that's why there's such this huge window. You've got people paying 10 cents a seed and then you have people paying $5 a tissue culture clone, you know, right. you might get the same quality flower out the other end, depending, you know, so it's yeah, expensive
1: food. expenses has a different expectation of value out the, out the back end. But I mean, there's gotta be some type of fine median in the middle where it really comes down to, you know, cost versus value right yeah. i mean yeah. so so one of the questions here um is i'd love to dive I want to dive into this process with you so if i'm a client <laughs> and i engage with you and i have a farm we'll just say it's 10 acres <laughs> and great uh, size and for
2: craft flower mark i love
1: it <laughs> yeah yeah so so 10 10, 10 acres for craft flower woo that'd be quite quite a quite a bit but um so what does that what does this process look like for you i mean as far as Are you asking me what I'm attempting to sell, what my products are going to be? Always start with with the
2: product. Always start with the product. I'm going to ask you, is this your first, you know, tell me about your farm. And when you tell me about your farm, I want to make sure I learn who you work with on the sales side. Do you have a... Let's
1: just just role play this. So I got 10 acres. I I grew in my garage for five years and someone just gave me a bunch of money because I'm ready to dive into the hemp industry. Um, I've got a... I've got Franco here. Franco's offering me seeds for for five cents a seed. Says he's got the most killer strains ever.
2: They're really dank, right, Mark? They're
1: dank, ultra ultra dank. Perfect for Southern California growing, you know. But
2: oh, you're in Southern California. That's that's nice. Yeah. yeah.
1: But but a friend told me a friend told me that Franco was a con artist and that I should be talking to Emily with Infinite Tree because you know what you're doing. So that's why we're here.
2: Well, uh, thank you so much. I will have to thank your, your friend. I'll give your friend a call and thank them personally. I'm (laughs) so glad they recommended us. I'll have to give them a call. And I love hearing you're growing in Southern California. You're doing 10 acres and your experience is in indoor growing. So that's really good to know. That really helps me, um, help you be successful now that you've transitioned to outdoor hemp flower. So the first thing is it sounds like you want to be in the craft flower market And you're really used to growing high terpene, resiny, beautiful, big, crystally buds from the indoor world. And I want to let you know, yeah, I want to let you know right now, Mark, that hemp is really moving in that direction to getting that indoor quality, like, um, you know, from the marijuana industry bud outdoors. So we're finally getting there. We're not as far ahead as the marijuana industry, but we're getting there. So you can absolutely grow outdoor hemp And get the beautiful bud structure that's dense and resinous and fully trichromed cakey crystals with hemp, but it's not going to be as good as marijuana. So I want to set your expectation there. Okay. And the things you need to look out for the questions you should be asking the other gentleman you mentioned who has very inexpensive seed. You should ask him for outdoor growing because now you're doing 10 acres. So you're growing thousands of plants. What's the hermaphrodite rate? Do you have samples of the flower? Can you share a sample with me of what you consider your like finished product? Who grew it last year? How many acres? Is this a brand new variety? Um, Did you just grow it on your farm or did you have other farmers who grew it? And what was their experience? Those are really basic questions aside from a COA and a germ report um, that you need to know. So now that you're growing an acreage, um, germination is important if you're buying seeds because if you want 10,000 plants, And you have to grow an extra 3000 plants to make sure you make your numbers that labor and everything really adds up. So that's why a lot of folks that my company works with infinite tree, they prefer to buy plants direct from us, we deliver direct at the peak of perfection. So whether you're doing 10 acres or 50 acres, we work with your farm to make sure the plants arrive at the right time for your field crew to get them into the ground. Because I'm sure, Mark, as you know, from indoor growing, it's very important that the plants have a continuous growth cycle, right? You don't want them to have a lack of vigor and st- and have to be stalled, right? Whether you're growing indoors or on 10 acres, it's they're still plants. Sure. So it's really important that those plants get to you at the right time. And that when you you have to remember that when you purchase plants, you're getting like a a plant that's ready to go. When you purchase seeds, you're getting a hope. You're hoping Mm -hmm. that that will become a plant you can put in the ground. So you have to. And
1: and you're primarily a plant provider, not a seed. We are
2: primarily a plant provider. Yes. Okay. So when you work with us, um, we provide you with plants, but if you're going to grow this other gentleman's, varieties as well along with our varieties we're happy to do contract germination so that you get all of your plants in the same format at the same age peak of perfection grown by us as professionals and we're happy to work with you we absolutely do that for clients so we don't we're agnostic if you want to grow a couple other breeders varieties with our varieties i think that's great and i can recommend a whole product line to you so that you can have a more comprehensive grow that meets your needs and we're happy to start all of those plants together. So you get the right format and they're at the peak of perfection for your field. Cause we've seen huge differences in performance um, from different kinds of plants.
1: Now, now, what is the what did the turnaround time look like and in association with that? So I just want to talk about on just the plants because sure. I have another question related yeah. to that for thing like things like custom genetics or, or yeah. coming you know, we breeders. do that as well. Um now when it comes to just the plants. I would be ordering from a catalog, right? A catalog of genetics. And then when you are, um, you are I'm assuming you're cloning the plants or are you germinating from seed yourself?
2: We specialize in very, our populations are very stable and we work with feminized seed for this reason. So we have really great, it's called homogeneity out in the field. So every plant looks like its neighbor.
1: Okay. So, but, but when we, when we're talking about the plant I'm receiving, is that coming from the it's coming from the feminized seeds that you guys germinated yourselves and then Correct. yep wrapped up okay so so it's not coming from you know a, say a mother colony where you're just taking a bunch of cuttings okay excellent now does that um I'm assuming that would obviously help for things like genetic drift because you're not you're not uh taking the same genetics from from a mother time and time again
2: yeah I think it, I think the question you're asking there is like when you what's our expectation for a population, right? Right. And when you grow a clonal population, whether it's from a clone or it's tissue culture, by definition, it should be very homogeneous. And you should have expectations around plant height, plant width, cannabinoid profile, and terpene profile. And they should be able to speak to that. Like if you measured up 10 plants, what's the variation look like? So you can achieve more quickly with a a cutting or a tissue culture plant homogeneity in your population. It takes more work to get that level of home or close to that level of homogeneity in a seed population. We're very fortunate that we have some amazing uh, lines that we've developed and they're very homogeneous across the population. So the main thing is to ask yourself when you're working with a seed provider versus a clone or tissue culture provider, Like, what's your end goal? Do you want to make sure everything is harvested at the exact same time? And even though it's a clonal population, there may still be variation in harvest. And same with the seed population. So, those are questions you should ask your breeder. We work with seed populations where I can say, I know for a fact there's about 10% of the population in our Oregon guava that matures about three days earlier. And for most folks on harvest, that's like no big deal. They want to start harvest. You know, harvest happens over a window for craft flower typically, and that's no big deal. But we've trialed other breeders' material. We trial like dozens of things every year from other folks that we were looking to work with. And, you know, the variation can be 50%. You know, it can be half the field is different, and that's unacceptable. So I think if you're really concerned about harvest window, for example, you need to ask your seed provider questions like, does some of it mature? And you need to ask the exact same question of a clone or tissue culture provider, and they should have the answers. When it comes to cannabinoid variation, again, clonal plants, tissue culture are going to be more similar, but you can still achieve the same results in a seed population if you've done the breeding work. The issue is most seed providers have not done the breeding work to get homogeneous expression out in the field. And it's hard. It's very hard.
0: The O Cannabis Conference and Expo returns to Toronto June 1st through the 3rd, and there are still good booth locations available. This exciting event is free for cannabis retailers and will feature Tommy Chung receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Cannabis Industry Awards. For more information about exhibiting or to register to attend, go to ocannabis.com. That's O-C-A-N-N-A-B-I-Z.com.
1: Yeah. Now, now question for, this is a question I'm curious about. Would your crop be hardier and more resistant to let's say a freeze or a pest infestation or a mold infestation or disease um, having that slight genetic variation as opposed to being completely, you know, the exact same genetics across everything because it came from a clone.
2: Yeah. So I think, um, I do have a bit of background in evolutionary biology, uh, so I can speak to this at a population level. You are a scientist. Yeah, I am. well, I mean, I am, I'm a scientist. I'm not a physicist, though, right? I'm a biologist who studied genetics. Right. So I, I know a little bit about this, but I'm also going to say, in terms of a buyer's perspective, Mark, like, if you have a mixed population in your field... Okay, let's take a step back. Your field could look identical. The flower structure, the smells, the cannabinoid profile identical okay on paper but when a mold spore you know wipes through your crop you know you get like some crazy fungal thing happening in the fall that fungus doesn't see the bud structure doesn't see the cannabinoid profile doesn't see the heights it sees the immune system of that plant and because it's a seed population it's going to have more variation than a clonal population Period. So you could have a seed population that to you as a human and by the numbers in the lab looks identical. But when that fungus wipes through your field, it's going to see different populations out there because the immune system of each plant is a little different. It's from seed. Okay. So my answer is yes, a seed population is generally much better at pests and disease resistant Uh, potentially frost, not so much, um, but more pests and disease than a clonal population. With a clonal population, you're more likely to get entirely wiped out. So there is a strong argument, especially with people growing in humid areas, to not plant clones, to plant from seed. I talked to a lot of farmers in the East and the Southeast, and usually farmers who grow other crops as well. And they understand the benefit of a seed population and that you can still have by human standards, a totally uniform looking field, like the flower, the smell, the cannabinoids, totally uniform. But when that fungus sees that field, it's seeing all these different immuno, you know, immunotypes and it doesn't, you know, it might take out 10% of the population, but it won't take out a hundred percent. You know what I'm saying? So,
1: right. It's right. It's kind of working its way through the field. It's like, I destroyed these 10 plants, but those ones are They're getting too difficult here and I can't quite get into them.
2: (laughs) Right, exactly. But it's a it's a hard thing in our industry because a lot of seed on the market is brand new and it's not been bred well enough to be homogeneous in the field. Mm -hmm. So it's hard.
1: So so as we're on the homogeneous conversation here, let's talk about tissue culturing. Now, just I'm gonna give you my understanding real fast. Um, You know, so I have genetics, I want my genetics to be preserved, or I'd like to have them be ultimately duplicated. And so I would then give my genetics to a lab who then basically cleans up the genetics. And the way I understood it, it takes about six months to do to basically preserve that exact, exact genetic line, so that I can then recall those genetics via tissue culture, where they basically do a little tissue culture in the lab to recreate all my different plants. And then I would have the exact same genetics across, you know, my entire field and potentially I could recall those genetics years later. So if I had a a line in 1996 that I was just so jazzed about that eventually after 24 years drifted and is ultimately not the same plant that it was 24 years prior, I could say, Hey, I'd like to recall those genetics and let's get that tissue culture back up and then plant it in my field and and go from there.
2: Yeah. And I think honestly, Mark, you're, you're that's spot on. That's a great walkthrough from the beginning of how you get started tissue culture to like the goals of tissue culture. The one thing I would say is that, you know, it's just hard to keep something around for many years in terms of library space, production value, things get, you know, things happen on farms. Uh, so I think there's a lot of value. The genetic drift, I'm not as worried about um, in terms of what that means in for cannabis. I think it's more like making sure it's preserved. Like if someone accidentally kills the two copies that we have, we still have it. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to maintain two copies to make sure like growing all the time year round. You have it in a freezer. And if you know in advance, they can bring it out of the freezer, grow it, and then it can become production. So I think I'm not too worried about drift. I'm more worried about like accidents. <laughs>
0: like,
1: catastrophic yeah. failures.
2: Catastro- like yeah. the power goes out for what's, three weeks. What's
1: going like, on right now in the- farm it, is- In most Fire.
2: The or your farm burns down. Like we saw in Oregon, a lot of folks lost their farms, you know, this year in, in Oregon and California. So-
1: Right. Along with most of their genetics, unless they had some sort of seed bank or tissue culture yeah. or something along those lines.
2: Yeah. yeah. So seed banks are good. They're a lot cheaper uh, and more mobile. Um, and you're in control of your seed bank, you know, as opposed to tissue culture, you're not it's like in a lot la- someone you're paying a service provider for that. So so that's totally tissue culture. I think the thing to look out for for tissue culture is people make a lot of claims about like cleaning your genetics. I mean, they'll screen it for like viruses and other pathogens. And through the tissue culture process, if your line does have like a virus, it is possible to create virus free stock from that. But like, you know, first you have to have the virus, then they have to make sure they get rid of it. Is this important to you? You know, but I think the tangible selling point on tissue culture is that you're getting something that's totally homogeneous because it's a clone, basically. And it's preservation. I think having your stuff cryo-preserved somewhere if you need it years later is great for you. You have to ask yourself questions though, like who's really paying for that? Like how many people are signing up for this service? And the other one is like, well, in 10 years, do you really want to still have that variety? Like, is that going to be relevant in the marketplace?
1: Yeah. I mean, should we, do we have a, are we still smoking weed from the seventies that was like what 5% THC, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Who knows what hemp and marijuana are going to be in 10 years. So I think people are attracted to it. It's kind of like shiny and sciencey and people like it. Tissue culture for me is not a nursery production thing, it's a research thing. I look at tissue culture as the format for doing research. So if you want to introduce a new trait, like you want your hemp to smell like strawberries, which is what I want. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So you want your hemp to smell like strawberries. How would you do that? Well, you could take the cassette of genes that create these strawberry terpene profile, build that cassette in a lab, and through tissue culture, because of the Um, methods we have available in tissue culture that aren't available like for during seed production, we can literally insert those genes that make strawberry aromas happen into the tissue culture plant and then grow up the, the plants that have those genes. And you can do that in the lab using tissue culture much better than trying to do it through natural breeding, you know, traditional breeding projects. A lot longer, a lot harder, a lot more numbers—like big mm-hmm. numbers. You got to grow tens of thousands of plants to find them, you know. Right. Where Tissue culture as a method allows you to do that research to bring in new genes um, to make hemp different. So,
1: so, I, so yeah. So potentially, if I'm if I'm just putting them side by side, and we have a, a, a genetic seed bank, you know, that's taking into account the traits of the plant yep. versus a tissue culture culture bank. Mm. Um, and I wanted to produce that strawberry flavored, um, you know, hemp flower, then it would be easier to do it with the tissue culture bank versus the genetic seed bank. Because with that one, I'm having to uh, germinate all the seeds, grow them to become the flower, and then ultimately cross-pollinate them in different variations and then evaluate that afterwards. Takes as so I much could, longer. Yeah, I could yes. do that vastly faster with... Yep. Just grabbing all those tissue gene, those cultures and the genes in there, and then just I don't even know how I'm I'm imagining this is like a like a paste. It's like cut and paste
2: mark. Think of it that way. You're cutting very elaborate, expensive cut and paste. I'm
1: picture, I'm picturing a syringe with a bunch of green juice, and you're just like sure, (laughs) sure. (laughs) Probably probably completely wrong, but
2: (laughs) it's okay though. Fine. It's fine. You don't have to be it's it it. It actually uses typically you can use um, a bacterium that inserts the genes, or you can even use gold particles. You coat DNA on gold particles, oh, wow. those into the cells. It's so with the
1: bacteria, would that be like a CRISPR style situation?
2: Yeah, you can use no you bacteria. can be CRISPR mediated. Yeah, you know what CRISPR. Is. Yeah, so you can CRISPR I, as I a, a little bit.
1: I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of being a little bit facetious about the uh, about the squirting of the green juice. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I guess what I'm saying is the point is other people in the plant world do this other plants all the time.
1: Mm.
2: It just, so, it it, can, so it's
1: happening. It's happening in other yeah. industries. Oh
2: yeah. We there. have GMO, you know what I mean? You know about GMO. Soybeans.
0: Everybody yeah, knows GMO Soybeans. soybeans.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there are way. So I think what I'm saying is people are using tissue culture right now as like a fancier version of cloning for scale. It's very expensive, you know? So I yeah. think that why it costs so much for tissue culture. I think prices are artificially low right now because I think investors like want to see traction. So they'd rather get the clients now while they have all this cash on hand, get you as a client. And then next year, you know, it, we'll oh, see- Oh, you
1: want, you want your genetics again? Triple the price.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully not that, but I was saying I have a feeling it just costs a lot of money. There's a reason why seed for tomatoes is cheap. You know what I'm saying? Like seed is inexpensive to produce. Tissue culture is not. So in my mind, if you can create a quality, homogeneous product that delivers in the marketplace using seed, you're golden. It's nature's way of propagation. It is how nature wants to make it happen. It's always going to be the most cost effective, like period.
1: I was going to say, I was going to say nature already does it so well. I mean, as long as we can help to guide nature to do it better, I mean, that would be the most efficient, effective way.
2: Exactly. So for me, you know, you just have to think when you do tissue culture or cloning, it's like, what are you paying for? You know, get a sample of the smokable flower. You know, it's not magic, you know, it's still a plant, you know? So it's like, just because it went through tissue culture doesn't mean it's going to have great bud structure and amazing terpenes. And has a data package behind it talking about how it grows in the field. It still can lodge. It can still get overtaken by fungus. It can still have, you know, um, issues with terpene content or bud structure. So I think it still has the same high bar that it should meet, even though it's a tissue culture plant. So I think that's part of it, but, um, Yeah. I think on the research side, I think of tissue culture as for research. I don't think of it as for scaling nursery, although quite a few people are doing tissue culture. So we'll see how it works out for them. They're fine.
1: When I I first heard of tissue culture, I was like, wow, this is definitely going to be the future of the space yet. I'm still kind of yet to see it become ubiquitous across, you know, multiple different farms or large farms. It's really kind of few and far between. I mean, I, I don't talk to farms that actually do it consistently.
2: Well, farms don't do it. labs do it.
1: No, no, that's what I meant. I meant the farms. I meant the farms using uh, t- okay. plants. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, last
2: year was really the first year. Last year was the first year we had a couple vendors on the market for tissue culture. I think too. Well,
1: know, I know make- in the, in the cannabis space, I mean, I've been talking to, to
2: oh, yeah, co- cannabis, companies
1: that tissue culture yeah. for the past like four or five years.
2: Yeah. In hemp. Sorry. In hemp. In hemp. Okay. Yeah, in hemp. I
1: just, I just assumed if they're doing it in cannabis, I mean, it's the same, same species of plant, right? Just with, with, just with variations.
2: Yes, so I just, some people don't realize that. And I'm like, it's the exact same plant.
1: Everybody that's, that's actually a trick question that I ask people all the time. And I ask them it just to get kind of a baseline of their understanding of, you know, cannabis versus You're so
2: cannabis. mean Mark. And it's, but it's
1: such, it's, it's, I mean, it is kind of mean cause it's totally a trick question. It's like, so, um, yeah. And I just ask them, you know, what's the, what's the difference between a cannabis plant and a hemp plant, mm-hmm. you know, in the species. And yeah. they're like, Oh, it's this, this. I'm like, no, it's actually exactly the same. Right. But just the genetic variations on how much CBD versus THC they produce.
2: Legal. It's a legal definition. Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
1: So, so I got, I got another interesting one um, here that I want to run by you about, Uh, Okay. So I actually have a background in the wine industry. Um, I got a minor in viticulture and I have a degree in ag business. I've worked for vineyards. I've pruned plants. I've grown. I didn't
2: know all this, Mark. That's amazing.
1: This is all, I've got like eight life, eight different like kind of life experiences that are completely different. Um, I don't know if you know, I was a professional football player as well. So that's, that's what I mean. I've done all these like random things that don't kind of match up, but you're like, yeah, it's like a different lifetime ago. But one of the things that is across all of the viticulture wine industry is uh, rootstocks. Because out here in the U.S., the soil and the diseases, um, basically, they will destroy plants that do not have a U.S. native rootstock. So, you know, when you have things like Cabernet, Sauvignon, Zinfandel coming over from Europe, they will get destroyed. They just won't make it out here. So you have to have a rootstock. And I came across a business um, last year out of Israel that claimed to have created a root stock that would increase your yields by, it was like, it was something uh, astronomical. It was like, increase them by 200% with this, 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 you know, there was a lot of claims in that, but I do get the power of a root stock, you know? So if you have a root stock, that's basically just shooting nutrients up into the plant, you could potentially have much, you know, Healthier, bigger, smellier buds than than struggling. Sure. Yeah. Um, so they were doing, they were grafting and doing root stocks, and they were selling their plants as a, you know, their actually proprietary root stock that they had developed on top of whatever strain or on the bottom of whatever strain that it is that you would like to produce. So I'm curious to ask you about that. Have you encountered anything like that? And
2: cannabis, I should say. Yeah. Uh no, and. I would be, I haven't, I've encountered none of this, so I don't know, but I would say there's a lot of talk in the industry about grow this cannabis in this region, grow that cannabis in that region, grow here, grow there. And when I look at the data, there really isn't much information. It's like, oh, well, I have some friends that grew it in Georgia And it did okay. So it's adapted to Georgia or something. And you're like, what does that really mean? So I think people are excited by the idea of like bio regions and like bio region specific cannabis, but I haven't seen it pan out. There are plenty of very specific growing conditions across the United States. You can be in the quote, same bio region, but have very different conditions on your farm. Right. I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying To date, I haven't really seen something that's like a specific, like grow this hemp in this exact soil and weather pattern, you know, like moisture and humidity and stuff. It's all very anecdotal to me. The information is very anecdotal. One day we might have developed very specific cannabis varieties for different areas. I don't think we're there. I never make claims about that. Um, I think overall, though, cannabis is a really adaptable plant. There's a reason it's called ditchweed, right? So, everyone, so I think like we need to remember it's a pretty adaptable plant. I think the problem is in our industry, we confuse not very good plants, like breeders who aren't really trialing their material and making good selections on one hand with the bioregion. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just because it didn't do well on your farm in South Carolina doesn't mean it's a South Carolina problem. Do you know what I'm saying? Totally. It's more likely where I stand right now, a breeder problem with how they selected that plant. And the research and the trials and the hard work that goes into really creating a great variety was not done because I feel it's a feeling I'm going to say it's a feeling still not like hard evidence. It's a feeling. Cause I don't have enough years. We've only been at this, you know, hemp has only been legal for, you know, less than a decade. Right. So,
1: right. And in 2015, you could not find a good, no. hemp, a good hemp no. flower anywhere. It was exactly. all trash. <laughs>
2: exactly. So, yeah. so look at how far we it's come. It. You know, we loved it. We were like, Oh my God, it's available. So what I'm saying is in 10 years, after 10 years, I will say it's not a feeling, but the feeling I have so far is if it's a quality plant, it has good characteristics in terms of agricultural characteristics Just start there. I feel like it can go pretty much anywhere in the U S like it's, I think think it could really do well anywhere. It's really about when it matures. Like you don't want something that matures really late in like a frost area. You know what I mean? Like maturity at the end is important, but it should be, it's not, it should be a good plant to start with. That's the main thing. And then it can go anywhere this whole bio region thing. I'm like,
1: so, so my, my take on this, I I agree with everything you just said. And when, when I, so there's obviously there's strains that are known to be just super high yields. Then there's strains that are known to be, you know, incredibly low yielding strains. To me, it would make sense if you put a rootstock on, that's known for just being huge and producing a lot of, uh, you know, really heavy weight, on the plant and flower, uh, putting that on the bottom of something that's known to not produce well, to me it would make sense. But the caveat, and um, so when you're doing it with wine, those plants are in the ground for hundreds okay. of years. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so in that case, it is a necessity. And when you spend the extra dollars because of you know the it has to be have it has to have a specific root stock doesn't matter. You're spending that one time and then you're going to benefit the next 50 to hundred yeah, years, yeah. however long that plants in the ground. But with hemp, you know, it's only in the ground for three, four months, you know, depending on where you're growing or how you're growing it. Um, so you have to do it every single time. Right. And, yeah. and when I was talking to this business, I asked them a question because they put up the pricing per per clone slash um and i don't know what the pricing is for you guys um could you just give me a ballpark real quick on say if i'm buying 10,000 plants what the price of you know let's say a, a 12 inch uh little seedling would be or
2: yeah we will we do we will ship 12 inch seedlings but not uh, so when you plant acreage they're typically in like a t72 or hot or like higher format so okay. give that but yeah but i mean ballpark in the industry right for plants quality plants right now depending on the volume range between two and four dollars
1: okay so that the reason i wanted you to put that number out there is because that's that's the number that i'm familiar with yeah. and smaller volume five dollars oh, sh- and but
2: two to four dollars yeah.
1: and there goes there goes my wife she's, hey. she's, she's good to work out but uh but the the which so when I was talking to this company, they had the quote at twenty dollars per per plant, and that was at volume. And I was just like, Look, I know that you're getting better yield, and or at least from your studies, you're getting better yield, and it sounds great, but I just don't see people paying four times, 10 times, you know, eight times the price, whatever it is.
2: You're not gonna or, get eight times yield,
1: right? Like, it's, it's exactly. Not yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
2: they they need to work on their math a little bit. There, they need to redo their their spreadsheets and figure that out. It's well, just
1: think of think of the amount of labor and just the processes to you know on an
2: annual crop.
1: I'm planting twenty acres worth of crop, and each one of those plants needs its own its own stock and has to be grafted. mm -mm. I mean, that's that's kind of a it's an interesting challenge.
2: Yeah. I think we need to focus on breeders developing rigorous field trials. Like we, I mean, we, I hope I work every year really hard with our team to have vigorous, like really black and white field trials to determine material selection and to then communicate that information to our farmers. I think that needs to be, we just need to go back to basics. Like none of this fancy, no fancy rootstock, no, you know, if tissue culture works for you, great, but it's not going to be, it's not a silver bullet, you know, it still has to meet the same criteria as everything else. So I think really getting, you know, drilling down on quality seed production that makes Mm -hmm. flour that you can sell that has a proven success in the marketplace. That's right.
1: I I completely agree. And I know we're getting close to your, we've only got about four minutes. We're getting close to your hard stop here. So we can kind of start to transition this. I actually, we're gonna to have to get on again because I still have like eight questions here written down. Well, write
2: them down. Write them down too. No, yeah. they're
1: they're written down right in front of me. Okay. That that I'm like, we're gonna get on this one again because this was really interesting. I mean, I I definitely enjoyed this. Now, overall, I just kind of want your final thoughts on sure. where you see the industry uh, when it comes to breeding and genetics, and where you see it in one year, five years, 10 years? like What what does it look like and where is it going to go?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that...
1: And you only have three minutes to answer.
2: First, first total THC laws. Let's just put the total THC laws aside and let's just say that we will have more opportunities to breed plants with different cannabinoid profiles in the future. So I'm just going to put that aside. With that aside, I think it's really about consumer demand and To be honest, consumers want taste, flavor, aroma. Cannabinoids are like, do I want this? You know, it's like, hmm. Mm -hmm. I think right now because it's novel and because of the laws, we're focused on cannabinoids like CBG and things. I think in the future, if I was to look five years out, it's going to be more about taste, aroma, flavor, and bag appeal than it is now. So it's going to be about strawberry hemp, I think, in five years.
1: I I completely agree with that. I actually recently got some products from a dispensary and they threw in some free joints. And when I got back and tried the joints out, they were so terrible that I told the dispensary, like you guys, even though you're handing out free joints, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're actually making the experience worse because the free joints that you handed out were trash. They tasted so bad. I ended up having to... I basically just crumpled them up and threw them in the garden, but, um, but yeah, it was so nasty. So yeah, I completely agree. Taste flavor, aroma, and then um, ultimately effects as well.
2: And even then, you know, you can tell someone it's going to make them feel a certain way, but there's no substitute for it tastes really good. You know, we don't eat chocolate cake because, or, you know, we don't eat an apple because of its fiber content. We might choose an apple, because it has fiber, but we still want a really tasty apple.
1: Right. And if the apple, if the apple doesn't crunch, it's always terrible. It's such a weird thing. It could be the most tasty apple ever, but it doesn't have that crunch pop. It's, you know, make it into applesauce.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I say flavor, flavor, bag appeal, aroma, you know, taste. That's my, that's why I think the long-term is cannabinoids are important, but uh, it's going to become less important. I think. Totally. So, oh gosh, well, thank you so much for yes, having this
1: this is great you gotta go so this yeah. was a blast i i had a i had a really good fun time here seriously like i i learned a lot and i could talk to you for hours
2: yeah me too thank you so much